Welcome to Out of the Fog, where critical perspectives on adoption are brought to the forefront. I'm Kasai, and I was adopted from Ethiopia. I'm Pascal, and I'm a filmmaker. We're broadcasting from Montreal on CKUT 90.3 FM. Merci, bon Dieu, car comment la misère finit pour nous. It's November, National Adoption Awareness Month. During this month, adoption is widely promoted as a solution for children who need a loving and permanent home. However, I noticed that birth parents are often left out of the adoption narrative. So a couple of years ago, I went to the American Adoption Congress in Boston and was introduced to a birth mom named Kat. I was 17 and a senior in high school and discovered I was pregnant. I asked her about the social mechanics that pushed her to give up her child. And like I said, I was searching for pregnancy help, and I found an ad. And so I called, actually, I found a few different things. And so I called a bunch of places. The one that happened to call me back was a facilitation service. And although I had not decided at that time to relinquish, that was really the only feasible solution that they discussed with me. And so instead of really giving me a comprehensive look at my options, they immediately went to, well, send us proof of your pregnancy and we'll send you profiles of adoptive parents. And so it was just assumed from the outset that that's what would happen. I tried to, to stop the roller coaster at one point and told them that I was, I was not wanting to, um, to do this and that I was going to parent and that's when um, she got really angry. She, she didn't, like, she didn't yell, but the tone of her voice got harsh. And she's like, well, do you, want your, do you want your son in foster care? And started to tell me what that would look like and that I would never get him back and that I wouldn't be able to choose the family. And that if I, at least if I relinquished, I could choose the family. This story happened in 2001 in the United States. For many, if you're young, don't have a stable income, and no family support, giving your child for adoption is a sensible choice. In Kat's case, she was pressured to make that choice. Throughout the 20th century, saving disempowered mothers and children from shame and poverty has meant separating them. We spoke to Julie Duchesne. She runs a museum dedicated to the services that were given to unwed single mothers in the mid-1900s in Montreal. In 1945, the Social Service Unit was founded at Sisters of Mercy. So it's the first social service that takes an interest in single mothers. Each young woman was paired up with a social worker. The social worker helped her make a decision about the future of her child. She would guide her throughout the process. The social worker had to make her aware of the realities of single parenting in the 1940s. It's easy to say, I want to keep my child, I'm leaving with my child, but how are you going to take care of your child? You don't have any baby clothes. When you're at work, who's going to look after your child? She had to realize that her baby is not a doll. Notice here Julie's vocabulary. She uses words like, the social worker helped the mother make a decision. 
she would guide her throughout the process, made her aware of the realities of single parenting, made her realize that the baby is not a doll. There is no mention that the social workers empowered the mothers or gave them any parenting tools. But to be fair, at the time, social workers thought they were doing a good deed. By hiding unwed mothers away from society, they saved them from shame and stigma. As for the children, adopting them out would remove their status of illegitimacy. We interviewed Canadian historian Dr. Allison Stevenson on the social function adoption was fulfilling in the 1950s. The role of social workers in crafting adoption as a solution to the crisis of white middle-class unwed pregnancy. It, it enabled white women to carry on in their lives as future wives and mothers, and it enabled children to not carry the stigma of illegitimacy, which was still very prevalent in society at that time. Allison explains that adoption has been seen as empowering for mother and child because it would give both of them a brighter future. However, from the perspective of a mother like Kat, it is disempowering and unfair. Historically, it was um, single parenting was not accepted. Um, but now, even as we've become more accepting of single parenting, we're not accepting of young parenting. We're not accepting of people who have not finished school parenting. Um, and there's a feeling of who deserves to be a parent. And so if you are married and stable, whatever that means, then obviously you deserve a child. But if you're young and don't have a steady job or don't have a guaranteed income, then all of a sudden you are less deserving, even though that you you are the, that child's parent. I mean, for me personally, it was a mixture of all of these things. You know, I was young and I had a part-time job at minimum wage and I didn't have a lot of support. I wanted to parent and I was basically told, you know, well, we're not going to babysit for you and we're not going to do this. So, you know, I tried to take on as many hours as I could at my job and I played the lottery um, hoping that I would win. But no one ever told me, oh, hey, you could apply for this program or you could uh, qualify for housing support or daycare support or help with diapers. No one ever told me any of that. Throughout her pregnancy, no one was supportive of Kat becoming a mother, not even her loved ones. And my boyfriend was not happy about my decision to uh, not go through with the adoption, and his family was not happy about my decision to not go through with the adoption. And everyone just kept reminding me how selfish and how childish I was being and how the baby deserved better. Um, that was a common refrain, the baby deserved better. So at this point, Kat truly believes she's inadequate. So she calls a facilitation service back, and then they send her more profiles of prospective adoptive parents. I would talk to some of these families, and they wouldn't want they wouldn't want to parent my baby for whatever reason. And it was just really reminded me that I needed to find someone who wanted him because he was going to be hard to place and my due date was approaching, and I couldn't do it. He deserved better than me. And so finally, um, I talked to his mom, 
and or the woman who would become his mom, and we got along very well. I actually really just felt like she was an older version of me, and I, I thought, well, if if I'm not good enough for him, then at least he'd be with someone who was similar to me. And, and that was, I guess, I guess that was it. You know, like about a month after that, I went into labor, and um, I guess that you know the rest is history. She uh, she and her husband flew to the state I was living in at the time. Um, and I got to meet them in person. Uh, I didn't meet them in person until actually after I had um, already, I think I had already signed the paperwork at that point. Maybe, well, maybe I met them. It's actually a little bit, because of the dissociation, it's, it's a little bit hard to remember the exact events in the exact order. But that was, that was it. The, the adoption was, was happening, and it was too late to, to change anything. So... These services told you that you weren't enough. Your your boyfriend told you you weren't enough. Do you think society could have told you different? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, if if one person had had said, "Hey, you can do this," and your son needs you, and we'll figure out how, everything would be different everything but there wasn't a single person who said any of that and so how what would that different scenario look like uh, well I certainly wouldn't be on the phone talking with you right now because I would be parenting a 15 year old son um, I think the biggest I mean what it would have looked like is someone saying hey do you know that you qualify for services. Do you know that we can find money for you to buy diapers? And you, I mean, I mean, actually, just saying your child needs you and you are capable, I think, would have would have changed everything. You're listening to CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal, and this is Out of the Fog, where critical perspectives on adoption are brought to the forefront. Cat's story is not uncommon. Women from lowest social classes have often been victims of child removal. Child removal became systemic around the 1950s. If you were a white, unwed mother, you were sent to a home, far from the public eye, and chances were slim that you would ever see your child again. However, women of color were not targeted, Kat explains. Historically, uh, women of color were actually not targeted because the resources were thought not to be beneficial to us. Women of color were seen as a lesser, less civilized, a group of women, and thus they would be okay with rearing children unmarried and as young women. And so they were not encouraged to seek out services, and they were not encouraged to relinquish their children. In the case of Aboriginal mothers, the stigma of single motherhood had to be crafted for child removal to even begin. This concept 
of the the unwed mother is actually very culturally specific um, for indig- because my research looks primarily at you know mm-hmm. indigenous families indigenous women mm-hmm. social workers had to actually create the indigenous unwed mother because mm-hmm. there was not the same type of social stigma attached to unwed pregnancy and single motherhood that there was in white North American society. And so, you know, when a young woman did become pregnant for the, in the U.S. is where I looked at this particular case, many times family moved in to just support the mom and the the child. And there wasn't that same type of social um, pressure on her as a so-called unwed mother. And so Social workers had to work diligently to craft this type of stigma in Indigenous societies in the U.S. in order to provide the young women with the types of services that they would provide to a white mother. This was the start of a new era, commonly known as the 60s baby scoop. We wanted to speak directly to someone from that era, so we headed to the Native Women's Shelter in Montreal. The street is busy with cars. There are no pedestrians. We arrived at the shelter, a sterile brick building. Hi, who is it? Hi, it's Kasai. I'm here for Nikusit. Okay. Nikusit is the executive director of the shelter. She's also an adoptee from the Baby Scoop era. The 60s scoop happened um, after the residential schools closed. So if you think of residential schools being a federal initiative, the 60s scoop is a provincial one. So when residential schools closed down, the government still felt that there was an Indian problem. And what they wanted to do was try to remove the children and um, that these children should be assimilated into society and lose their Indian status. And the way they were going to do it now was send social workers into every single reservation and decide whether or not they felt the parents were able to care for the children. So it was a little bit of a poverty issue. Nakusit explains how children were removed for dubious reasons. So if you didn't have, if you weren't living like a middle-class family, then you couldn't take care of your children. So no running water or no um, toilet. If you use an outhouse, that was a reason to take your children. Or if you didn't have a fridge or if you looked lazy. So basically they called the scoop because the children disappeared so quickly. Just like there were some women who were like, they went to sit down and they turned their back for a minute and when they looked again, the social worker was gone with the children. Nakusa recounts how abruptly she was removed. My mother went to residential school. She wasn't able to uh, take care of us. She was very neglectful. So my older sister, Sonia, was the one who had to um, take care of us. So eventually, um, my sister... Um, and I went to a foster home, and we stayed there for a couple of days. And then one morning, my sister woke up, and I was gone. She was like, where did she go? And she was old enough to understand that I was gone. And she was confused. She was like, did she go back to our mothers? Did, did mom just come and take, you know, Margaret, that was my original name, or, or, and, and leave me here? And then when 
Sonia went back to my mother and realized I wasn't there, then she started to get really scared. She was like, oh my God, my sister's gone. She's somewhere. So that really affected her for her whole life until today. The abuse that Nakusit experienced is intergenerational. My mother went to residential school and her mother went to residential school. So my great-grandmother was extremely abusive. So my mother was extremely abusive. Now, I went through the same things. My mother was physically abusive with me, and it's actually in all the records. When we read, you know, the case studies, it talks a whole section about, you know, my eyes black and shut, and I had marks around my neck from being strangled, and all kinds of horrible things that you don't do to a baby. But that's what, what happened to me. Seeing the pattern of abuse throughout her family, she was afraid to turn into an abusive mother herself. I was so afraid to have children. I'm like, okay, I have an adopted mother who's kind of cuckoo. I have a birth mother who is super abusive. Those are my role models. This is not good. I should probably not have children. I should probably not have children. So before I had children, I waited a really, like, I waited until I was 35. I didn't have kids until I was 35. Nakusa did not have any role models, and that affected her self-confidence in parenting. I think... That's what happens. We are so insecure in our own parenting and in our own role models as parents that we give them up. And it happens more than we want. And there's always that push through the social workers that it's a better thing. You know, yeah, yeah, it's probably a good thing to do it. Yeah. Constantly doubting their parenting abilities has made many 60 Scoop survivors develop a fear of having their children removed. Being part of the 60 Scoop, though, we have a tendency to be overly afraid of youth protection. Overly afraid. So I don't, I think that a lot of us feel this way, but for me personally, um, every, everything that I feel I might be, doing wrong will be reported. For instance, I have three boys. I breastfed all my kids. Sometimes if you breastfeed your children at night, they can get cavities. I did it. They got cavities. I was sure when I went to the um, dentist, and I actually stayed up the entire night because I'm like, I'm going to bring my kids to the dentist. I know they have cavities. They have to have a procedure. I'm sure youth protection will be there at the door because they will say, you are not a good mother. You should know better. Therefore, we're going to take your children. Generally, people are not aware of what Indigenous people live through. And that leads to insensitive comments. I went to the doctor's office with my um, middle child, who was a baby at the time, and he had a really bad diaper rash. And um, I couldn't get rid of it. So I was like, okay, so here we are at the doctor's office and explain it to her. And she writes me a prescription. She looks at me, she goes, well, it's a diaper rash, so I'm not gonna call youth protection on you. So I take it, I don't say anything. And I walk away and I'm like, oh my God. You know that threat you're always worried about? It's coming to life. I went to work and I was like, hey guys, does your doctor ever joke about you or make comments about calling youth protection? They're like, no. I'm like, okay, it's an indigenous thing. Adoption denied Nakusit from her indigenous identity. She claims there is a political agenda behind it. 
So what they do is they erase your file. So if I look at my actual case study that the social workers took here in Montreal, it doesn't have my mother's name. So if I get the file, and they also write that my mother's a Métis, which she's not. So if I take this file and I'm like, I want to find my real family, so my mother has no name and she's Métis, can someone help me find her? That's going to be really, really difficult. So my mother, who, may be, who might have, I don't think she looked for me, but if she wanted to look for me, how is she supposed to know that we were living, we were living in Thompson at the time, Thompson, Manitoba. Um, how would she know that she would have to come all the way to Montreal? So the point was, if you move the children as far as away as possible to a different part of the country, it's really hard. And, and, and make sure that the records are sealed or burnt or erased, it's really hard to retrace your steps. And my thinking is that the treaties that each community received, the government has to give you something. So basically, we took all your land. In return, you can have... Uh, post-secondary education, you can have eyeglasses, you can have um, 10 sessions with a psychologist, uh, you can have your teeth cleaned. Um, my treaty, I get $5 a year for being an Indian. So the government owes a pocket of money to every Indigenous child, but if you assimilate them and they no longer have their status, they never get their status, right? Because my mother never registered me. I had to register myself when I was like in my mid-20s. So if I'm not registered, the government keeps that money. So it's like, oh, look at the pocket of money we have. Let's see how we can keep this money because they don't want to have to pay it out. So that's my idea why they try to do the 60s group because, you know, I, I was once I did get my Indian status back, I did go to university. I did get a degree. I, I still, you know, um, get glasses and get my teeth cleaned. And now I pass it on to my children. They have their status so they can get the same thing. So, but if you erase it, it stops, you know, they don't have to be financially responsible or honor the treaties. They don't have to do it anymore. The government has benefited from erasing the indigenous identity. Similarly, the adoption industry benefits from portraying adoption as a win-win situation. A lot of coercion happening today, which makes it very much like the baby scoop era. However, the way that it is um, couched, both by the industry and by society at large, makes it really hard to really focus on those similarities. People, especially in the industry or who are benefiting from the industry, really want to point out that we're not sent away anymore. There are programs out there to help with parenting. Even if you're not told about them, they exist. And so there's this, I mean, there's just the perception that adoption is a win-win situation. And people really want to look at those who relinquish today as women who didn't want to parent. And so um, it's really hard to convince them. Actually, a majority of women who relinquish do want to parent and would parent if they were given some resources to do so. Kat believes that young women would think twice before surrendering their children if they were fully aware of their rights. In any other situation, when you're signing a contract, you would be told, you know, what your rights are, and you would have the opportunity to have an independent person look at that contract. And in adoption, that very rarely happens. Um, you're told that you could get your own lawyer, some, but you're very rarely told that it's actually standard practice that you could tell 
the agency or the adoptive parents that they need to pay for you to get a lawyer. And so if you're too poor to parent your child and you are told, oh, you could get your own lawyer, you're thinking, how am I going to pay for a lawyer? You're not thinking, oh, the ethical thing to do would be for the agency to provide me with a lawyer. Kat says that mothers who consent are not fully informed of the consequences on their mental health. Women considering relinquishment should be told that of the possible outcomes for the child, that they have a larger um, likelihood of suicide or mental health issues. They should be told that their grief and loss will exist and be a lifelong issue. They should be told that they themselves have a higher instance of secondary infertility. They should be told that they themselves have larger chance of having their own mental health issues. In that way, we need fully informed consent in both. But we also need to really focus on the coercion involved. Um, We wouldn't want a woman to terminate a pregnancy because a spouse or a family member or society told her she should, and we shouldn't want her to terminate her legal connection to her child for the same reason. Kat highlights how birth fathers also need to be empowered. There's an assumption that birth fathers are or would have been deadbeat dads. So they then there's a stigma. And why would you willingly tell the world that you are or would have been a deadbeat dad? And that's not true. A lot of the fathers who end up relinquishing their rights, um, just as the mothers would have preferred to parents. But there's actually another layer in that a lot of the fathers may not know that they're fathers at all. In the United States, and I'm not sure about Canada's laws, but in the United States, fathers who are not married to the child's mother don't necessarily have to be notified of an adoption. And so there are some state statutes that um, allegedly were put in place to protect fathers um, called putative father registries. And these registries, men are supposed to register if they believe that they um, have been in a relationship where a child might occur and if they want to be notified if that child will be placed for adoption. These registries aren't well advertised and so very few men actually register with them. Um, And a lot of men don't find out about their existence until it's too late. And so they find out that they have a child or that their child has been born and placed for adoption. A lot of the cases, the men have been putting together nurseries and going to medical appointments and looking forward to becoming fathers. And then they find the child was born, placed for adoption. They weren't told. And because they hadn't registered, they have no legal right to the child. So there are lots of layers to why fathers Um, aren't really around or uh, vocal in the adoption movement, but a lot of it comes to stigma as well as just awareness. If you don't know that you have a child who was adopted, then you obviously don't know that you have a part to play in the adoption community. Um, If you are told that your opinion doesn't matter about the outcome of your child, then you don't really take on that, that identity. I don't know how we change that. I don't know if we change that. I don't know um, what would increase the number of vocal first fathers out there. 
But I think that the adoption community would be a much richer place if we had heard the voices of these fathers. This is it for this month. You are listening to Pascal and Kasai. And this was Out of the Fog on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal. If you are one of our local listeners, be sure to attend a conference at UCAM University called Adoption and Colonialism. It's free, engaging, and insightful. It's happening on Monday, November 14th. We'll be posting the details on our Facebook page. Nakusit, one of our guests from today, will be one of the many panelists. See you on the first Friday of December. And until then, happy National Adoption Awareness Month.